G'day everyone, I'm Alex DeRossa. And I'm Alex Manning. And uh, welcome to an episode of Under the Wig that we think could go anywhere. Just in case you were wondering, we are brought to you by MSLS and the College of Law. Law school is only the first step to admission, the next step, practical legal training. The College of Law provides the largest range of flexible practical legal training programs in WA. Visit colllaw.edu.au to learn more. That's C-O-L-L-A-W.edu.au. Uh, so one of many memorable features of this very memorable year has been the amount of large-scale protests going on from uh, climate change protests over the summer. Uh, and more recently, we've had the Black Lives Matter movement, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, and as a consequence of our degree, we are interested in the legal ramifications of these protests and what happens to people involved when they are arrested whilst they're protesting. To discuss this today, we are joined by Corey White. Corey is a criminal lawyer who has involved in defending 17 Extinction Rebellion protesters arrested late last year. Corey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Uh, so we'll come to the issue of protests in a sec, but first let's just get a bit of background about yourself. Uh, you're a Murdoch grad. What did you study and what was your time at, at uni like? Uh, I studied law arts, you know, just to be a little bit different. But, uh, you know, Man of taste, I see. Yeah, not so many people have got that double degree, but my um, arts degree was politics and international studies. Oh, brother, same. <laughs> so it really only qualifies you to work for the government, be a journalist or be a lawyer. Um, journalism's cooked. I'm a journalism student, so you don't uh, need to tell me that. You know, I've got uh, some dodgy antecedents to work for the government, so here I am stuck being a filthy criminal lawyer. Sweet. How did you get to being a... So I yeah. worked um, in occupational health and safety and, and workers' comp, um, basically, you know, complying or making sure the company was compliant with its OH&S obligations and managing workers when they got hurt and trying to limit the damage on the, uh, on the compo claims. And then one day there was a change in the legislation whereby employers had to put an employee's annual leave entitlements on their pay slips. Um, and obviously we were working in HR at the time and there was a directive that came down from the company whose name I won't mention. Basically to wipe off 25% of all the employees' annual leave entitlements for it was printed on their pay slips. That's um, stiff. So yeah, it was, um, you know, theft and... I decided from that day I uh, wanted to go and be a lawyer um, and I enrolled in the, um, it was a course run by Steve Shaw, it was basically just one unit which gave you access into the law degree and I went to uni as a mature age student and never looked back. Well, I have, <laughs> with a lot of regret, because if I had a stayed in that industry, I probably would have, you know, got two unencumbered houses by now by virtue of the mining industry. But my parents said, stay at uni, invest in your mind. Well, they should have said was invest in a mind. So here I am, <laughs> rocking away as a criminal lawyer. Yeah, right. And what, what is practising criminal law like? You know, can it be as sort of ugly and better call sorely as people think or is it not like that look there's a lot of misconceptions about what we do i mean some of my friends think my job is like a, a serial podcast uh but the reality <laughs> of it is that you know pet. some bloke's done an armed robbery for a packet of cigarettes down at the servo and you know his pants <laughs> fell around his ankles when he was trying to run out the door and you know that's armed robbery um, <laughs> So some of it is <laughs> yeah. um, not very glamorous. Some of it is a little bit gory and grotesque. Uh, but sometimes there is stuff that's quite rewarding and 
it's a little bit few and far between the rewarding stuff. It can be a very thankless job. You know, you can get curry from your clients, the peanut gallery of their family, uh, prosecutors, magistrates can be unpleasant some days depending on what's going on in their personal lives. But I don't want to speculate about that because, you know, speaking ill of the bench is not good for your career. So uh, I'll confine it to that. If it's any consolation, I really doubt there's any magistrates listening to this. So, oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> and you know, the legal we'd be impressed. Board, we'd be impressed if we got well, any. Well, never underestimate the KGB. So, I mean, the legal practice board. <laughs> um, there are ups and downs. How did you come to be defending climate activists, and what was the scope of work you did for them? Uh, well. I got a call from a lady at a community legal centre, um, Naomi, and she said, look, have you got capacity to assist some of these people? And obviously it's an issue that I'm sympathetic to. Some of them were lovely, uh, quite committed idealists, you know, committed to non-violence, and some of them were, shall we say, difficult clients to deal with. Uh, In what way? Well, look, part of my job is telling people things they don't like to hear. Uh, and quite often, you know, I'll give someone some legal advice and they say, well, that's not fair. That shouldn't be the law. Well, you know, be that as it may, my job is to tell you how the law is. And if you don't like it, take a ticket, get in line and complain to your local MP and see if you can get the law changed. Uh, I know the Law Reform Commission does a lot of that work. They're not very successful, but hey, you know, you as an individual charged with a summary offence, you may have more traction than organised bodies. But, you know, some of them were very thankful. And it was, as a lawyer, a bit of gratitude can be invigorating. You know, thanks is the lifeblood of, of a criminal lawyer. Um, as I said, it can be very thankless. So when someone's genuinely grateful and goes and puts their hand in their pocket for a $20 bottle of wine with a card, you know. It really, really uh, <laughs> makes you feel good. I'm sure, I'm sure. What do these protesters actually do to get arrested? Obviously, protesting is not itself illegal, so, so what is? So there was two cohorts. One group, which I believe was the first one, they interrupted a sitting of parliament and they had... Um, some little trinkets, love hearts they'd stitched up of felt, which they uh, symbolised their heartfelt message. Um, Lovely. And anyway, they disrupted Parliament, were asked to shut up. They didn't, had to be escorted out. Some of them, you know, refused and had to be carried. Uh, the state so, Parliament. At the State no, Parliament right. building. Um, so, yeah, that was the first cohort. And then there was another lot who... Uh, held up an intersection, I believe, up near William Street and St George's Terrace and were doing things like sitting in front of the road and chaining themselves to poles. I remember those guys. So some of them were charged with trespass, some of them were charged with failure to move on, some of them charged with obstructing police. Uh, so it was all those sorts of minor offences that most of them were charged with. And I guess now, in these last few months, there'd also be capacity to start charging people under COVID restrictions or whatever else too that might start coming into play yeah well look I mean I, I don't know if they're organising that sort of uh, level of protest again during this climate and certainly I noticed that the attitude of some of the magistrates had softened towards 
the protesters. Um, but nonetheless, to the letter of the law, what they did was still criminal, although it was devoid of any serious criminal intent. It was motivated by the public interest, and I think most judicial officers were very sympathetic to that position. And as a rule, do they, do they tend to be? Well, I had a magistrate, I saw another lawyer try and politically grandstand and say, you know, there's been emergencies declared in all these jurisdictions and the magistrate got stuck into him and said, look, if you want to grandstand, go outside in front of the media. But, you know, the fact is people were late for work. Yes, it was a criminal offence. Um, and I had my matter come up and I said, yes, you know, look, we accept that it was... Um, disruptive you know I myself was late for work but you know lucky for me I'm always at the back of the court list because I'm a junior so I wasn't inconvenienced so no harm no foul but it was a, a wide spectrum of people I mean I had one girl who was the lead editor on the royal committee the final report to the royal commission into the banking and financial services um, she, she was the lead editor on that and she was out there yeah and she and so the west australian leaked her name and because she worked as a consultant for a publisher in Melbourne who relied heavily on government contracts, they didn't want to have their flow of government work jeopardised by this, you know, lefto, pinko, commie employee out in the streets. Um, so she was uh, disadvantaged and she suffered a detriment for that. So the magistrate was very sympathetic to her. Some I did have who were just hangers-on, people who just wanted to be a part of something and then, you know, you get their criminal record and you go, oh, you've done two years for armed robbery. Um, ah. It's a bit hard to make a submission to the police that, you know, you're of good prior character. You know, the way I look at it is clients are like sexual partners. It's um, the hardest thing is to do a good job for even the ones you don't like. So <laughs> I try and proceed on that basis. And what, what processes do clients go through once they are arrested when how long before you see them so once you've been charged most of them were given were charged via summons which is essentially a notice in the mail uh, with a statement of material facts and a prosecution notice that has a court date on it most people came to see me before their initial court date uh, essentially what happens is you get the first stage is called a first mention uh, and that's when you have to answer to the court and you don't have to enter a plea at that stage. You can seek to adjourn it for legal advice, uh, which most often we do. Majority of those protesters, I adjourned it for legal advice at first point and sent a submission to the police seeking to either discontinue or downgrade the charges to a lesser offence. So some of them had their charges discontinued, others had them downgraded to a minor offence under the road traffic regulations, which is you know, pedestrian not to cause obstruction, $50 fine. Most people were happy to walk away with that. So that was the essence of what I did for most. I didn't take any of them to trial because they had no defence and I didn't want to ruin my reputation in the court by running trials that had no merit. Sometimes that was quite a, a round and round conversation to people, you know, saying, well, this is an emergency, but, you know, well... Under the, you know, defensive emergency, it doesn't quite meet those elements. So I'm afraid you're just going to have to plead guilty and seek clemency from the court. Mm. They are running a test case on that now, aren't they? Uh, emergency? Uh, well, the ones that happened here were all found guilty to my knowledge. Oh, okay, I think right. there's one going in Brisbane. Um, but who cares about Queensland? I mean, 
it's a glorified refugee camp with poker machines, if you ask me. I mean, the only, <laughs> only similarity we've got is Samuel Griffiths drafted both of our criminal codes uh, and they got rid of their Senate, so you can't really trust a, a state that has one house yeah, of parliament. parliament. Yeah, yucky. Or that produces the, the people they produce. Well, just look at the track record. I mean, what can you say about a state when Kevin Rudd's the best person they've produced? I mean, <laughs> Joe Bielke-Peterson, Clive Palmer, Pauline Hanson. Malcolm Roberts. Malcolm oh, Robert. Well, I think it was Western Australia. Oh, well, so there's not a similar, another similarity then we've got between Queensland and To be fair, we've we produced some flat. We've yeah, we, well, as well, Western yeah. Australia and Queensland are the two most redneck states in the country. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so I only recall, one of them is referred to the Florida of Australia. Well, yes, but I mean, I remember when Paul Keating was advocating for the reform to the native title legislation, his approval rating and the government's approval rating suffered most dramatically in Queensland and Western Australia. <laughs> so surprise. there's uh, a little bit of history for you. So legal observers, um, we hear sometimes about they have legal observers along at protests. Now, I know you haven't worked in that yourself but what what do these what do you actually do there if you're a legal observer at a protest stand there and watch people get arrested i guess Uh, (laughs) all you are is a witness and i think the uh, philosophy behind it is to have someone there watching the police so they don't use excessive force um, but the fact is you can't be a legal observer in the back of a paddy wagon. Mm. Um, and having been in the back of a paddy wagon once or thrice during my misspent youth, oh, right. the okay. favourite trigger of the police in those circumstances is to put the handcuffs on you, go around the corners in the paddy wagon so you can't use your arms to break your fall when you slide along the back of a uh, divvy van and you collide with the back. That is a bit naughty. You do get a throbbing headache, but... You know, nothing I wouldn't do if I was a copper either, I'd have to say. <laughs> Every now and again, you get if you're a cop, you get people who are really pissing you off. and that's Mate, the, I, have, that's I have clients I want to flog. <laughs> I mean, it's just the way of the world. And look, there's a lot of uh, ill will towards police in the current climate, and I understand. Uh, but I have to say, the vast majority of police I've ever dealt with uh, in my capacity as a criminal and as a criminal lawyer, they've been... Was that a deliberate pause? Well, <laughs> I, uh, I did get up to a bit of no good when I was a young fella and I had some you know, convictions I had to disclose to the legal practice board before I was eligible to be admitted. Um, but the vast majority of police do a very difficult job and they do it well. Uh, and look, I don't have much bad to say about the vast majority of police in this jurisdiction. Well, probably because I'm a privileged white guy. I haven't had the experiences that some of our other members of the community have had. But I have to say, in my dealings with them, they've been very fair and reasonable for the most part. And can factors beyond the client's own best interests sometimes affect how you might handle a case? So would they rather make it stink and go to trial than make it go away quietly because they don't get the platform? Look, some people want to, to grandstand and have the like you say, platform yes. to advocate their agenda. Um, but I said to people who wanted to do that, you're just going to piss off a magistrate. You're wasting the court's time. And if you want to pay more of a fine, be dealt with more severely, um, be my guest. But the fact is I was not going to run any trial where someone wanted to uh, defend themselves on that basis. Uh, and... The fact is, it's always your personal circumstances if you're pleading guilty. I mean, the circumstances of the offence are obviously relevant, but 
the rule I work on is it's 90% your personal circumstances and 10% the offensive hand. So hang on, by personal circumstances, you mean people uh, plead guilty and try and get a lesser sentence based on... Yeah, so in a plea hang, mitigation, your we'll personal... We'll just let old mate on the... Pardon? We'll just let old mate on his motorbike. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's probably one of the more pleasant noises you'll overhear from this window. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, especially at night time. Well, and this is, you know, close proximity to the Magistrates Court, the District Court, Royal Perth Hospital, the Public Trustee. <laughs> so it's basically, you know, the roundabout yeah. of... Uh, Cross-section of human society. Unfortunate people. Unfortunate people, yeah. Disadvantaged crescent, I like to call it. But anyway. Do you find that this kind of, I suppose, social justice work, for want of a better word, you know, it is for a particular social cause, do you find that more rewarding than ordinary practice do you find that you're you know looking forward to it uh certainly not financially fair enough <laughs> the fair fact enough. is got a bottle of wine. drug dealers can pay their legal fees but social justice advocates can't um which is you know unfortunate but look some of the most rewarding work i've done I, i've done pro bono it nourishes your soul it doesn't help with the finances, but it has been some of the most rewarding work I've done. And as I said earlier, when someone's genuinely grateful uh, and expresses that gratitude, it goes a long way. And also that's, you know, some the best marketing you can ever have is that word of mouth referral. People obviously, you know, rely on a recommendation by a close friend or someone they've known to be a good person. Have you got, have you got a favourite uh, pro bono case that you've come across or a most rewarding one? I got a couple. I did uh, a plea mitigation for a woman who was being chased by the Australian Taxation Office, of all people. Everybody's um, <laughs> And look, you know, I have issues with the iniquity of the Australian taxation system. Uh, but anyway, without giving away too much, gone down to the magistrate's court and the ATO have sent down four lawyers. I've got four lawyers for this woman who's refused the court order to file a tax return. She hadn't filed a tax return. She had some very um, sad personal circumstances. She was unable to. Uh, and the ATO, you know, not very pleasant to deal with. Anyway, they sent four lawyers down. Um, and this woman was looking at imprisonment. She had a couple of young kids, learning disabilities. And this girl from the ATO, I'll never forget how smug and pretentious she was. Just, you know, like she was flying the flag for the Commonwealth and it's these single mums avoiding the taxation department that are really corroding the financial security of the country and not the multinationals. But anyway, I did make some submission to the court that, you know, well, it's not like she's living the life of King Farouk. I mean, she's yeah. fallen on hard times. What, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, I didn't really know what the sentencing regime was for the Commonwealth and I said, look, Your Honour, I'm in your hands as to sentence. And the ATO girl got up and said, uh, I'm also in Your Honour's hands. I was thinking, hang on, there's four of you sitting down here. Surely someone <laughs> could have figured out what the appropriate sentencing disposition was. You're all on 75 plus grand a year and you can't figure out what the sentencing regime is. So, you know, to paraphrase NWA, fuck, fuck, fuck the ATO. Sure. Um, <laughs> we can leave that in. We're leaving that in. Really. Yeah. <laughs> Sick. All right. Yeah. Um, so, 
going back to social justice, uh, what advice would you give to students who might be interested in uh, partaking in some social justice action? Don't do it. <laughs> go, and, go and do your infantry course at Kapuka. Learn how to, you know, get your way around a stair and some different explosives and military tactics and let's stage a coup as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. Let's uh, kick out the rent seekers and the thieves like Andrew Forrest and start over. Western Australia would be the richest country in the world if we had the policy settings right. But unfortunately, Australia secede. we've been hijacked by a group of uh, not so intelligent elites going back to, you know, the Forest dynasties and the Murdochs and the Stokeses and they run this place and it's an absolute travesty that things are the way they are when there's so many better alternatives to an array of policy options. Uh, so this policy paralysis in many areas, I think, you know, can only be remedied not through social justice advocates, but the threat of violence. Mm. Up the revolution. Seize the day, my friends. Carpe diem. Yeah, we're already halfway. We're halfway to seceding. We might as well finish off the job. Yeah, now. I was going to say. Well, I did a gig for the SAS uh, Christmas time. A gig? Uh, yeah, I did a stand-up so, show oh, like for a, the, okay, the yeah, yeah. SAS. We, we should probably mention at this point, Corey is also a stand-up comedian and has performed at Fringe. So, yeah, this is on the back of a, um, shall we say, war crimes scandal. Yeah, yeah. Heard, heard about that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the SAS guys love me and I am trying to organise a gig for the police later this year so if I've got the SAS and the police on board then you know we've got some of the parts required for a coup we're just needing someone <laughs> to go in and kick down the door at the ABC 720 um, take over the airwaves and this is now the Republic of Australia Surely you go for 6PR first. I mean, if there was a radio station where well, I could go you, in Well, you do need you the know, boomers on board, but, you know, what's the breakdown of boomers who listen to 720 and 6PR? Probably all of them, I suppose. Yeah, well, look, they're going to die soon. So anyway, I'm a little bit disappointed with Corona, to be honest, because I thought, you know, I was brushing up on... so much potential. I was brushing up on my estate law. You know, I thought this is going to be a boon. All these deceased estates, beneficiaries fighting over wills. I was just going to be a fucking bloodbath. But here we are having an increase in domestic violence instead of deceased estates. It's been very upsetting mentioned before the interview how your stand-up routine assisted in your advocacy tell us more about that uh well just an ability to to read a room sometimes you can see the mood a magistrate's in mm. and you can alter your submissions based on sensing the the vibe or the atmosphere or the mood the magistrate's in that can go a long way just you know being aware of your surroundings and that's a skill i've acquired doing stand-up for many years were you a stand-up before you were a lawyer I was. I started in my first year of uni, um, so I am the second most prominent comedian from Bassendean. Uh, the first what one a being title. well, the first one being uh, Rolf Harris. Um, oh. But you know, what can I say? Being funny is both taken as places we've had no right to be. Look, I always thought law was a glorified reading and writing degree, but um, you know, for some people, it uh, has a higher calling, and that is brown nosing. Well, brown nosing and uh, making it hard for brown people and poor people. So, you know, I'm too much of a union man to uh, go down that route. But 
It's when, a more honourable thing it's to do. Yeah, you know, yeah. Everyone's got a price, right? Yeah. I mean, I might stand here and rail against Andrew Forrest and what he did to the Injibandi people and the fact that he's a useful idiot for the Chinese. But if Andrew Forrest offered me half a million bucks to go work for him, I'm not sure my ethics <laughs> would be able to go, oh, come on, man. You know, I've got a hex debt to pay off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, look, I understand. And people take jobs, particularly in the criminal law, that they wouldn't usually do. Uh, for me, you know, I could never go and work at the DPP uh, because, you know, the thrill comes in keeping people out of jail, not putting people in jail. Mm. That's interesting because, I mean, you hear people say the other way around, oh, I couldn't defend people, you know, I couldn't defend yeah. criminals. Yeah, so, well, see, look, I won't do sex, like a child sex matters. I don't want to know about that sort of thing um, because you don't get paid enough to deal with those sorts of people or to look at that sort of disclosure. And it takes a piece of your soul and you don't get paid enough to do it. And at the DPP, there's an expectation you will do child sex matters. Mm. Uh, And they pay them very well and they feed them very well too uh, by the looks of things. Everyone that goes to work at the DPP seems to... (laughs) Oh, right, gotcha. Be a bit wobbly around. Seem to blow out a little bit, but uh, (laughs) shout-outs for my friends at the DPP. No doubt they're listening in their sky prison at 11.30 in the evening. You have cuddly office hours then here. Uh, Look, when it's busy, you're very busy, but when it's not busy, you know, I'm a very keen surfer, uh, so I try and do a lot of surfing during the winter and the autumn and try and book my schedule accordingly, work hard through the the summer months when the waves aren't as good and make sure my mornings are free in the winter as much as possible. Uh, So, yeah, look, I don't have a a slave-driving type employer, if I can phrase it like that. I know lots of other people I went through uni with and are in the, in the corporate world work under a different sort of system. You know, billing pressure is a big one. You know, you've got to bill a certain amount of units a day. Uh, whereas we do a lot of work, which is legal aid. So, you know, the fee is a fixed fee. Yep. Taxpayers picking up the bill for the people who can't afford the legal fees. Yep. So working in crime is a bit different to um, the billing pressures of commercial or civil law, which I like. Sense. I was going to yeah. say, surfing was one of the reasons that we uh, didn't actually get you in earlier. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that. Um, <laughs> that was, yeah, look, the waves have been good most of the week, so I've been lucky. But, um, yeah, no, that, that's something I, it's part of my lifestyle and I don't know how I'd stay sane doing this job if I didn't have that catharsis in my life. It's one of the few things you can do when, you just got pure focus and it sounds romantic and wanky to talk about the purifying <laughs> aspects of that and, you know, Tim Winton, no, fuck off. <laughs> oh, God, bloody Tim Winton. You know, uh, it is something that I, I place a lot of value on and I couldn't imagine having to be one of these um, poor souls on St. George's Terrace going into the Sky Prison at 7am and leaving at 5 and just getting by. And grind you down. It would, and, you know, a lot of people don't make it through the first two years for that reason because it's difficult and, you know, especially if you're a woman, there's all the sexual harassment you've got to put up with in the workplace. Um, not that I've seen any here because uh, there's generally just mostly blokes working here. So we just have to keep the harassment to, you know, intellectual inferiority. Dumbass, fuck off. But, no, that's how we uh, generally work here. All right, so um, we've we've gone from Wardrobe. Extinction Rebellion to... Wardrobe malfunctions during armed robbery. That was good. Yeah. 
And now... Bit of Keating. Bit of Keating. Thank you for the very interesting discussion, Corey. It's uh, been fantastic. Yes. All right. If you guys want to be my associates, I'm afraid you're not attractive enough. No worries, Corey. DeRosa and I have high standards as well. Thanks to our sponsors at College of Law, and we'll see you next time.